Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When people begin to study the book of Acts, it is very common for people to take the perspective that the early church had it all together right away. This is a very common perspective. It is assumed that when the early church got started, they had a complete, full understanding of everything that they needed to know and understand. They had full, complete maturity in terms of their growth in Christ Jesus, and they were ready to go to go forward and present to the world everything that we could possibly need to know about our relationship with God that has now been established for us because of what Christ Jesus did for us through the crucifixion and resurrection. It is then assumed that over time, over the years since the founding of the early church, it is assumed that the church has diverged away from the original understandings, and they are assuming that those original understandings are without error. This is a very common perspective, and so people will often go into the book of Acts with hopes that they might be able to converge on the truths that they need to know and understand to be just like the early apostles. But if we were to be just like the early apostles, then we can learn an awful lot about their condition, about their maturity, as we read through the book of Acts. For example, as I was describing in the previous broadcast, the church did not know that a Gentile could actually be saved until Acts chapter 11. Now, a lot happened between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 11. And so given that understanding, we should expect to see indications in Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 11 that shows that the early church did not understand that a Gentile could actually be saved without first becoming a Jew. Another example that I was giving in the previous broadcast is that the early church did not consider whether or not a Gentile would need to be circumcised. It was assumed before Acts chapter 15 that a Gentile would have to be circumcised. It wasn't until Acts chapter 15 that the discussion took place within the church between the apostles and the elders of the church. It was then that they finally discussed the subject as to whether or not a Gentile should live in obedience to the law of Moses and whether or not they should be circumcised. And so that tells us that the early church did not seem to really consider this question before this great council that had occurred in Acts chapter 15. And so given these examples, it is my position that the early church did not have it all together right away, that the disciples and the apostles of the early church had a relatively poor understanding of the implications of what Christ Jesus had done for us, and because of that, we should not look at the book of Acts as something that we converge our understanding onto, because in the book of Acts, we have the description of the early church not having a clear understanding, that their understandings were quite divergent from one another, especially when the apostle Paul came on the scene. When he came on the scene and began to minister what the Lord revealed to him, there was great conflict between himself and the church in Jerusalem. The most important subject that we have to pay attention to that we need to consider whenever considering anything in the scriptures. 
the most important thing that we should know and understand when considering subjects relative to the Bible, the person of Christ Jesus, anything related to this at all, the most important thing for you to consider and grasp and fully understand is the gospel, because everything is understood in light of the gospel. Now, I realize that many people will certainly agree with me on that point. However, there are many people who disagree with myself and, of course, each other with regards to just what the gospel really is. Now, I personally believe that the gospel can be best understood as we describe it in the context of a problem and a solution. The gospel describes the good news. However, it's very difficult to appreciate the good news without also having a clear understanding of the bad news. It is the solution to a problem, and this is a problem that is very, very important as it defines everything that has to do with our relationship with our God, collectively and individually, throughout the entire history of humanity. This has been the fundamental concern relative to our relationship with our God. The problem was described in the early chapters of Genesis. Consider, for example, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord describes the creation of humanity and defines some very specific points that are very critical to us understanding the nature of the problem. Consider chapter 2, verse 7. This is Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where it says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This is a very important statement, that something was breathed within us, and we became different than what we were before. Before, we were considered to be a being, but not very alive. After this event of the breathing in of the breath of life, we became a living being. Now, in the Hebrew, there is a much better description of what was actually breathed within us. The word construction that's used there is the Nishmat Chayim, which is a unique construction of words that describes the very Holy Spirit of God. It is a composition of two words that describe the uniqueness of the Spirit of God, the life of God that has been breathed within His creation. And so when we became a living being, we became a living being in the context of having life within us, and in this case, it is the very life of our God and dwelling within humanity. This is a unique construction in comparison with the breath of life that was given to the animals. This is unique. It is something different. We were created to have a very different life within us than the animals had within them. There was a very clear distinction. But as you continue to read in Genesis chapter 2, there was a very important law that was given as it relates to this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God within humanity. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, it says, this is Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. And the construction of the words there at the end of verse 17 says you will absolutely, in that moment, at that very moment that you eat from the wrong tree, you will, most certainly, without question, without exception, you will die. 
It was a very important commandment, and I sincerely believe that, especially given its close proximity to verse 7, that he is referring to the absence of the spirit of life that was breathed within humanity, that life would be withdrawn. Let me give you an example. As you continue to read in Genesis chapter 3, you discover that, sure enough, Adam and Eve eat from the wrong tree. And when they do that, they experience the penalty that was described by the Lord when they ate from that tree. They certainly died. That happened. But as you continue to read in the scriptures, you discover that Adam continued to live. He was quite active. He lived to be 930 years old. He had some children. He did some farming. He seemed to be quite active for a dead guy. So what kind of a death was it? If it was a death that happened at that very moment, he did most certainly die, then what kind of a death was that? I sincerely believe that given the definitions of these words that are used, that the death that the Lord was referring to was a spiritual death, that this unique life that was breathed within humanity to make him unique from the animals was withdrawn from within him, and he became dead, not to the world, but he became dead to God. He did die physically 930 years later, but that was only secondary to the primary death that the Lord was referring to, which was the absence of his spirit within humanity, within Adam and Eve. That was the death that I believe was being described here. And the physical death was an act of mercy on the Lord's part, on behalf of us, to ensure that we would not live here forever, because this is not heaven. Heaven is his kingdom somewhere else, and that is a place that we are destined to approach and enter in, provided that we are born again and saved according to the gospel that was given to us through the Lord Jesus. And so this describes the problem between man and God. The problem is that we are dead, We were created in a specific way to have the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God within us, but because of the sin of Adam and Eve, we are all born in the image of Adam and Eve, which is no longer in the image of God, but is now in the image of what it is like not to have God indwelling within you. That is how everyone has been born into this world since Adam and Eve. That describes the problem. The problem is that we are dead. Now, this certainly is not the only problem that we are faced with. For example, we have indwelling sin. Without the Spirit of God within us, we have chosen to pursue fulfillment in the world around us, and because we have chosen to pursue fulfillment outside of our relationship with our God, because we certainly don't have a relationship with Him before we are saved, before we are born again, When we engage the world out of the emptiness that is within us, trying to have some fulfillment in our life to fill the deepest longings in our very being, when we do that outside of our relationship with our God, then that is effectively sin. And sin is without question a barrier between us and our God because we need to be forgiven of that sin. And so the sin issue is also an important issue, but certainly not anywhere near as important as the death problem that was instituted according to the law of sin and death that was described by the Lord himself in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And so what we really have here is we have two parts to this problem between man and God. The bad news is, is that we sinned and we died. We have sin within us, and we do not have the life of God within us. We have a propensity or a desire to pursue sin, and we are not pursuing a relationship with our God. 
These are descriptions that give us a better idea with regards to the nature of our condition. And so what is the good news in contrast with the bad news? Well, the good news is that the Lord has provided a solution for this problem. The Lord himself came and manifested in the flesh and dwelt among us as the Lord Jesus, and then he died on a cross on our behalf to provide for the propitiation of the sins of the entire world. In other words, he has died for the sins of the entire world to the extent that the Lord no longer counts anyone's sins against them. The sin issue between man and God came to a complete end when the Lord Jesus died on the cross and proclaimed that it is finished. When that event in history took place, the Lord Jesus dying on the cross, the effect of that event, the meaning behind that event, was that the Lord our God no longer held our sins against us. Now, this is certainly something that we can definitely appreciate, the fact that our God does not hold our sins against us anymore, but that doesn't save us, because that's not the totality of the problem. Sin caused something specific, and that is spiritual death. Therefore, we may be forgiven, but we're still spiritually dead. And that is a very serious problem that still needs to be addressed. The whole world is technically forgiven, but the whole world is certainly not saved. The whole world has been forgiven. Everyone has been forgiven. No one is going to go to hell because of their sins. We are going to go to hell because we are dead. That's why people will go to hell, because that's all that the Lord can do with dead things. You just burn them. That's what you do with dead things. The Lord forgave us of our sins so that he could offer to us the spirit of life that had been lost in Adam so that we can become alive to him. We can then effectively be resurrected from the dead, from the deadness of the world and from the people in the world who are still spiritually dead. We can be resurrected from the dead right now through the regeneration of the re-indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God within us. That is the good news, is that the Lord our God has provided for the propitiation for sins, so he can offer to us the spirit of life that had been lost in Adam, and so that we can be made alive, we can effectively be resurrected, regenerated, or through the indwelling presence of the life of God. You can also understand this in the context of being born again. We are born into being a new person because we have an entirely new life indwelling within us. That's the good news. The good news is best understood as the solution to the bad news. The bad news being sin and death, and the good news being forgiveness for the sin and the restoration of life to solve the problem of being spiritually dead. It was the event of the resurrection, the Lord Jesus resurrecting from the dead, that made this possible. He resurrected from the dead so he could resurrect us from the dead, offer to us the spirit of life that had been lost in Adam, that rose him from the dead, and will also raise us from the dead, so that we can begin to grow in a relationship with our God. That is the good news. The meaning of the resurrection is that we can have the presence of the Holy Spirit re-indwelling within us. Now, please do not underestimate the importance of this gospel do not underestimate the importance of this. This is paramount to everything in the scriptures to include the book of Acts, especially in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, 
because it is here that we see the historical record of the Holy Spirit being restored to humanity. It is here that we see the Lord our God restoring the spirit of life that had been lost in Adam and Eve, beginning with the disciples who became the apostles and others who were born again by the very Spirit of God, which then created the momentum to spread the message of the gospel throughout the centuries for hundreds and now thousands of years so that the message could be communicated to you and I so that we would also have the opportunity to receive the free gift of eternal life and be saved. This is very important to understand because as I go through the letter that Luke wrote, I will be consistently referring to the gospel because not everyone in the early church had this full, complete understanding of the gospel. Many of them did, certainly, and I'll show you several examples that indicate that they did. But there were many others who did not truly understand the gospel that I've just described, let alone the implications of this gospel, the implications of what the Lord Jesus has truly done for us. And I will point these things out as I go through the book of Acts. For example, consider Acts chapter 1, verse 4. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says, And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Here in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, the Lord Jesus tells them right away that this is now the time when the Lord their God is going to provide them with the Holy Spirit. They were immersed once before in water, but now they are going to be immersed with the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, into the body of Christ. Did they understand what he was talking about? Apparently not, because as you continue to read in the next verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, It says, And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, they ask him a question, and he tells them it's none of their business. They're asking him a question that has nothing to do with what he is doing. They did not appear to understand the full ramifications of what he described because they deferred the conversation to what the predominant understanding of the Messiah was in that time in history. They believed that the Messiah would come and reestablish a kingdom there on earth that would be the restored Davidic kingdom so that they would be able to live in a kingdom in their own land, sovereign from the surrounding people. They would be an independent and free people who could live under the peace and under the authority of the Messiah who would reestablish the Davidic kingdom. That's what they were looking for. That's why they said what they said. They said that because that was the predominant perspective of the Messiah and what they believed the Messiah was going to accomplish for them. But he says, no, that has nothing to do with what I am doing right now. Right now, he is telling them to remain in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is going to be restored to them, and through that restoration, they are going to become alive. They are going to be resurrected. They are going to be born again by the very Holy Spirit of God. Again in verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Continue to read to verse 8. But you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. He diverts their attention back to the issue of the restoration of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. But they have no idea what he's talking about. They have no concept of what that means. They did not have a good understanding of the gospel. They had a good understanding of what they believed the Messiah should do for them, but that's not what the Lord Jesus came to do for them. He will most certainly in the future reestablish a kingdom here on earth, but that's not what he was doing at this time. This is something he's going to do in the future. But right now he's dealing with the restoration of the Holy Spirit to humanity. He's dealing with resurrecting people from the dead spiritually, making people alive, born again. That's what he's doing. He's building his body. He's building the body of Christ through the indwelling presence of his spirit within his people. That's what he is doing. The Lord Jesus makes a very clear distinction between the baptism of water that was presented through John the Baptist and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is a very important distinction to understand. This was described in Acts chapter 1 verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In other words, he makes a very strong contrast between the baptism of John in water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit by saying, yes, certainly John baptized with water, but, he uses the word but, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, a different baptism. Baptism had originated with the Pharisees as a means of converting a Gentile to Judaism, and John the Baptist used the Pharisaical doctrine through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired John the Baptist to go forward and use the ritual, the sacrament of baptism, that the people understood was a means of conversion for a Gentile to Judaism. He went forward and started baptizing Jews, which was to suggest that the Jews were just as unclean as the Gentile and were in just as much of a need for salvation as the Gentile. The Lord then used the subject of baptism in order to describe another baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is an immersion done by the Holy Spirit into the Holy Spirit, into the body of Christ, a person then converts from the state of being lost and spiritually dead, not being a member of the kingdom of heaven, to now being saved, spiritually alive, and now a member of the kingdom of heaven, identified as a child of the living God who has been born again because life has come into them. They are now a living person who has the indwelling presence of the very life of God restored to them so that they are born again of the Spirit and are now a child of God. The Lord Jesus then describes in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 what the effect of this transformation would be, that there would be an experience of being born again by the Spirit of God, but that as a result of that there would be a transformation within a person so that they would be witnesses of him throughout all the earth. This is described again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. 
Well, a person does not necessarily need the presence of the Holy Spirit to be a witness of the Lord Jesus, a witness in the sense that a person can go forward into the world that they are a part of, and they can testify of the Lord Jesus. They can tell other people about the Lord Jesus. They can tell people about the gospel and about salvation, what the Lord our God has done in the past and what he is doing in the future. They don't need to be a born-again believer to do that. Anyone can be informed of the truths that have been revealed by our God to us, and they can go forward and communicate those truths to other people. Anyone can do that. I believe that this is a description of a unique witness that would occur as a result of the indwelling presence of our God. When the Lord your God indwells you and transforms you from the inside as a result of the personal interactive relationship that you experience with Him, there is a change. There are probably going to be many changes. There will be a change that will be so profound and unique that it will be fully recognized that this change could only occur through the transformation of a living God, of an active participant in your daily life who completely changes everything about who you are through your relationship with Him. There is a unique change that happens within an individual when they encounter the living God in a personal, interactive way, even more so over the course of time as they grow to know Him more personally. The depth of character that is developed within a person is something that cannot be generated or duplicated or imitated. There is a real change that occurs within a believer as they mature in Christ Jesus and grow, given that they are a living being now, living things grow. And as they grow, they will be transformed into who the Lord wants to conform them into being. And this change will be revealed as the living God finds ways of manifesting himself within and through his creation, within and through you. And when that takes place, you are then functioning as an image or as a reflection of the living God. We were originally created to be in his image, and that word means to be a reflection of him. And through his indwelling presence within us and the personal interactive relationship that we have with him, we have the privilege and the opportunity to experience him in such a way that he will reveal himself within and through us to others so that we will live as a witness of who he is. We will live and function testifying of the reality that he is alive and actively participating in the world that we are a part of and that others should come to know him and be saved. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net thank you